Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis, the Standard's Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, the Deputy Culture Editor. You're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. We're at His Majesty's Theatre. Previously Her Majesty's? Yes, indeed. Above us we can see the new stained glass signage in line with the coronation of the King. Before we get into all that, this is what we've got coming up. Ryan Calais Cameron is joining us to talk about his new play Retrograde at the Kiln Theatre. Last night I was at the Kiln, we did a Q&A and they had to sneak me through the uh, like performers and exit, right? At the back. They thought so weird, man. <laughs> They've never had to sneak a writer through the back. <laughs> we'll be reviewing The Motive in the Queue, a play by Jack Thorne, directed by Sam Mendes and starring Johnny Flynn, Mark Gatiss and Tuppence Middleton, which is now on at the National Theatre. Plus, theatre critic Alice Savile will be joining us to discuss the good person of Szechuan. It does feel like it has a bit of sort of cost of living crisis era London relevance as well. Maybe as everyone gets a bit more stretched, kindness can sort of slip over into foolishness. A co-production with English Touring Theatre and Sheffield Theatres, that's on at the Lyric Hammersmith. Welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Today we're coming to you from His Majesty's Theatre, home to Phantom of the Opera. We're in the Royal Lounge, and with us here we have today guest critic Alice Savile. Hello, Alice. Hi. As we say, it's His Majesty's Theatre now, as of uh, May the 6th, in respect of the coronation. It's wonderful looking at the frontage. They've done a beautiful new piece of stained glass, you know, just changed out the first word. Um, yeah, and it looks wonder, it looks like it's been there since the 60s. It does. I wonder who on earth does that. Is there just somebody waiting for a monarch to die so they get to redo <laughs> the front of um, <laughs> the theatre? This is the fourth theatre that was built on this site. The very first was built by Sir John Vanbrugh. The fourth one was designed by C.J. Phipps, the one we're sitting in today. Home, of course, famously to Phantom of the Opera for 38 years. The second longest-running musical in the West End at the moment was the longest-running musical on Broadway until it closed recently. There were rather sad photos of them shipping the famous chandelier out of the Broadway theatre. And we were just week. on the, we just nipped in and had a little look on the stage. Yeah, at what is actually the massivest chandelier I think I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. It Obviously, is. selfies were taken. Phantom was until 2019, I think, the most successful entertainment product ever made uh, in terms of sheer revenues generated until. It it was overtaken by the Lion King fact fans <laughs> there you go I was trying to think about the royals and theatre I don't know if we, I mean there's been a play about King Charles the third well his majesty's theatre is the perfect place for it now, yeah, exactly. they just yes. have King Charles the third running time for a revival yeah. I think definitely I think, so. I think yeah. the, the, the late queen was uh, famously fond of war horse which maybe doesn't uh, 
surprise that many people, but I've, I've only ever seen one Royal at the at the theatre, which is at the Haymarket Theatre, directly opposite this one. Uh, I was at a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, and um, there was a lot of police around, and that was because the Queen Mother, the late Queen's mother, came in. My only Royal Theatre experience was when I went to see 42nd Street. They had um, Kate Middleton come up at the curtain call to be presented with a pair of uh, sort of Diamante tap shoes, which was a bit of a surreal, <laughs> a bit of a surreal bit of theatre. I kind of thought for a moment, is it a body double? Is she going to put them on and do this fabulous dance? She would be my queen. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's sort of also an insight into the slightly surreal life of a working royal. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, what did you do today, dear? I went on stage at 42nd Street and they gave me some tap shoes. Yeah, Great, yeah. stick them in the vault. <laughs> Talking of theatre royalty, Kenneth Branagh is going to bring us his Lear. Oh, yeah. He is. So uh, yeah. is that uh, exciting news for you, Nancy? I don't, you know, I'm, it's, completely un, it's completely unfair of me, but I was a bit like, like, oh, good, Kenneth Branagh is giving us his Lear. <laughs> like, it's, I suppose it's about time. It's one of those roles where you just sort of think, oh, God, it's, you know, they've been waiting for X amount of time to do it. And the last thing I saw Kenneth Branagh in, not on stage, I admit, was not Murder on the Orient Express, the other one, the more recent one. Death one on the, the ship, Nile. Death on the Nile. On the and, Nile. and, you know, sort of charging around with that ridiculous um, <laughs> moustache. I'm not seeing Lear at this point. How about you, Alice? Are you looking forward to the, the, the Branagh giving us his Lear? Well, I do have quite a soft spot for Branagh because I do remember when I was sort of studying Shakespeare at GCSE, it was very much a rite of passage to watch the Branagh films and be like, well, this is how we do Shakespeare. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe it's nice that he's picking up the complete Saturn. Yeah. I will be interested to see it, of there course, is, and I may eat my words. There's a slight sense as well, isn't there, that he's ticking off another thing that Olivier did. Olivier, I think, famously said the awful thing about Lear is, by the time you're old enough to do it, you're too old to do it, because it's such a demanding role. <laughs> so much time on stage, so physical, you know, carrying yeah. Cordelia in on the end. So maybe it's good that Ken Branagh's getting his in <laughs> under... I'm not sure how old Branagh is now, early 60s, maybe? Maybe, yeah, maybe. I actually don't well, know. Yeah. Get it in before your 70th birthday, yep. tick it off. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Head off back to Hollywood, do a couple more Thor movies. So for our first review this week, it's The Motive and the Cue at the National Theatre. We went mob-handed to the opening night this week. Well, it was the theatre opening of the week and a very starry audience. Yeah, I spotted Tobias Menzies of The Crown fame. Also, various journalists went there. Um, <laughs> T- Naga Manchetti, I saw. And I, I, think... was, I was behind Emily Maitlis yes, and I was next to Indira Varma. Um, yeah. I told her I was looking forward to her Macbeth and she got very upset. <laughs> I'd said this in the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought we were past all that, but anyway, there. <laughs> well, and the play itself refers to it. So it does. I hope indeed. you had an indulgent nod to Indira at that point. Yes, moment. yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the latest play from Jack Thorne, who is vying with James Graham and Chris Bush to be the most prolific writer across theatre and all other media. This is his. Um, take on Richard Burton's famous 1964 Hamlet on Broadway, which was directed by John Gielgud. It focuses on the rehearsal process for that production, which was a very fraught rehearsal process, but produced what is generally thought to be, it was the longest running Hamlet ever on Broadway. I mean, I don't know how many Hamlets have ever run on Broadway, but uh, this was the longest. But they said that like something like 200,000 actors have played. Am yeah. I remembering that number you wrong? Are. But it was I a massive number I wonder where they yeah. got have that played from. Hamlet. Like, yeah, so many people around yeah. they said more than around the, world, around the world yeah, like around not the world, on Broadway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> imagine but yeah I mean yeah. so it's still it's, quite a it's, thing it is still quite a thing it's about clashes of opposites I think mm. that's what it's about 
It's about Gilgood's old musical style of Shakespearean acting. There are lots of good jokes, lots of great lines and lots of great in-jokes in here as well. There's a wonderful one, which I think is a very sort of deeply coded one. I've seen some film of Burton and Taylor where she says, I wanted to act with him because I wanted to act with one of the greatest actors in the world. And he says, what do you mean, one of? <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was a version of that that worked his way into the script. Yeah, yeah that's which a is nice all, conversation. It's all great stuff, but it, it did also lead to my reservation about the show. You know, it is extremely industry-centric and in-jokey. It's very um, meta, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, I did think when I came out, I was like, this is a play for people who really like theatre already. Yeah. Like, it's not a play that's going to sort of turn a new audience onto theatre. Uh, I think the new audience would still have fun. Well, no, 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 absolutely. I think that's true. And, you know, a few people um, who I've spoken to this morning, like, that, you know, they don't go very often and they enjoyed it. I took a friend who almost never goes to the theatre unless I take him, and he quite liked it. You know, he sort of enjoyed it, and he was intrigued by the fact that it was these real people. And the thing is, I suppose, ultimately, not everything has to do that. Not everything has to kind of, like, drive new audiences. But it's a play about stratospherically famous people directed by a very famous person, Sam Mendes, yes. and starring moderately famous people. And the Nationals got to make a buck. Do you know yes, what I mean? I that's think that's true. kind of fine. And, people who and it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, and people who do bring a different sort of cocktail of celebrity to the show. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that Jack Thorne is, you know, as famous for his TV writing and his film writing as he is for his theatre writing. Yeah. Ditto Sam Mendes, Art House Projects on the one side, James Bond on the yeah, other. Exactly. Um, and you've got, you know, Mark Gatiss from... League of Gentlemen yeah. and, and you know Flynn and, and Tuppence Middleton bring their own sort of mm. fan bases or their own sort of angle on fame to it and this is partly I think the play is about it's about acting and it's about process isn't it it's mm. about mm. creating art how you create art yeah. but it's also about commerce and fame and how mm. those three can sometimes be at war with one another and also if the National Theatre can't do a love letter to theatre who can really well, I guess exactly. that's true yeah. but also I think if it's this fun it's okay I yeah. think you're allowed yeah. to you know yeah. wallow in theatre if, if you want because it's the idea of conflict and, and I think people do like a glimpse behind the, rehe- the, oh, behind definitely. the curtain audiences never see rehearsal mm. rooms and they don't realise the sort of you know the kind of weird lack of glamour involved in <laughs> doing your scene with a with a, a fake skirt tied around you because you know you'll have to walk in one stuff yes. like that you know it's fun yeah. should we talk briefly about the performances yes mm. I thought Mark Gatiss particularly was excellent yes mm. um, it would be I think very easy to tip that performance into parody because Gilgood does have that sort of old-fashioned, softly clipped poise, mm. and he is and a bit very arch. melodious, sort very of melodious voice, my dear boy. But um, I think Gatiss just about manages to keep it on the right side and of the line. The comedy comes in through yeah. that, his, yeah. his, and him mouthing along the words. I noticed that every now and then, if you watched him, it was really interesting. Oh, uh, Mouth along to when Burton was doing the speeches, yeah. And obviously, a big, big contrast is. Him basically saying, this is how you should do it. This is how I did it. And yeah. Burton going, no, no, no. I yeah, want exactly. to do a different one. Please stop yeah, telling yeah, me yeah, how yeah. you yes. did it. <laughs> but similarly, I think Johnny Flynn as well. You know, Burton's voice is one of the, even though he died several decades ago now, it's one of the most recognisable ones. Mm. Still, I would say, and it's very hard to try and capture the essence of an extre- extremely famous mm. person without doing an impersonation mm. of him. Yeah. He particularly got the sort of diction, you know, that, that yeah. very sort of terse diction that, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that Burton has. I thought he had it absolutely down pat. And the physical 
energy and anger of the man as well, the way he sort of paces around. I think he carries the physicality of it really well, despite being actually quite a slight man. He's not very tall, no. and he's really quite a sort of slender dude. I Johnny don't think Flynn. Burton was a big man. Though. No, was but he, he gives the impression of being <laughs> yes, a big man. He does, Do you know what yes, I mean? And that's yes. what's funny about it. If you'd said to me, just without me really looking at pictures immediately yeah. of Richard, full-length pictures mm. of Richard Burton, if you'd said, like, who could play Richard Burton on stage? I would have actually weirdly said someone like Bertie Carvel, mm. because he's a brilliant physical actor and he also has this sort of unavoidable presence of a kind of six foot three bloke yeah Um, so not the rock then (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that I would weirdly like to see but, still. but I think actually you know Flynn pulls it off yeah. absolutely brilliantly he also has that very slight although he's a very handsome man he has a slight cragginess about his face which works mm. really really well Yeah, shout out to Tuppence Middleton yeah. um, doing I've a lot with actually not quite as much not as quite else. as much because you talk about not being allowed into the rehearsal room Liz Taylor is not allowed into yeah. the rehearsal room I know because... it's quite weird isn't it you think at some point she's going to get let yeah. into the rehearsal room she yeah. never shuts up about yeah. not being let into the <laughs> rehearsal room but so it never happened. So she's sort of shut up in this lustrous pink hotel suite with the paparazzi baying outside. You know, this new phenomenon of the paparazzi, which is basically almost created by Burton and Taylor by their relationship. They created that beast. And I say what's also brilliant about this is you get a few edited highlights of Hamlet without having to sit through all four hours of Hamlet. That is, that is true. <laughs> Sacrilege. And they, they speak, I'm sorry, true. I apologize. Totally but, true. But they, uh, they speak it beautifully and there's moments oh, where, I mean... And I was again, like, I want to see Johnny Flynn's Richard Burton Hamlet. Yes, <laughs> all of it's the same. The end of Act One, Mark Gattis as, as John Gilgood gave a beautiful, oh. uh, just a monologue, just very sad, very, mm. and it was it was stunning. And actually, Janie D has a wonderful moment as well. Where oh she yes, she does that and, beautiful bit where um, there is a where Claw- Claw- yeah, where um, yes, oh Gertrude, Gertrude, yeah. thank yeah. you. He's <laughs> 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 talking about Ophelia and telling you know the story yeah. of how yeah. she was found and how yeah. she died. It is incredibly touching, actually. It's rather lovely because you see it. I like this device that they have where you, you sometimes have the actors just standing at the front of the stage with a black backdrop mm. as if they are on stage doing the role and then it will lift and they'll be suddenly in the rehearsal room and everyone is responding it's to what they're doing yeah. as in the rehearsal room. And so, and you see the actors responding in the way that mm. you've just been responding and it's really lovely, actually. Yeah. Janie Dee plays Eileen Hurley who is uh, only, I think, seven years older than Burton but That's playing right. his mother and... Yeah. Uh, I gather, I think she played Gertrude in, in Olivier's Hamlet on the film as well, and he was actually older than yes, her when she was yeah. playing as well. <laughs> so, yes, yes, which yes. Uh, again, it's another lovely injury. An excellent design by S. Yes. Devlin, you know, who is one of the best designers out there, isn't she? I mean, she always knocks oh, it out. that ending. Pop. I loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. That and here, beautiful. there's a sort of sliding set of, uh, mm. uh, of, of screens that open like a, a sort of film camera aperture mm. to reveal this sort of stark mm. rehearsal room or this sumptuous boudoir where the uh, where Liz Taylor is is mewed up like a sort of slightly sexually unfulfilled princess. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But and also, you know, really good direction by yes. that little known chap Sam Mendes. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. It was. It was. so incredibly. brilliantly yeah. put together. All those set changes and the way that characters step out as if they're doing Hamlet gives them time to change the set without you thinking yeah, about it's it. Bloody really. clever. Yes. Yes. On a side note, Sam Mendes has been promising a one-to-one, me a one-to-one interview for thirty years, and still hasn't come through. So, Sam, if you're listening <laughs> to this, now's the time. <laughs> time for a quick break. Right after, we'll be joined by the hottest playwright of the moment, Ryan Calais Cameron, to chat about his new play, Retrograde. If you're enjoying the show, why not hit subscribe and give us a rating? 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Lenny Henry, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. We're now joined by Ryan Calais-Cameron, writer of Retrograde at the Kiln Theatre and for Black Boys Who Have Considered Suicide when the hue gets too heavy at the Apollo, which finishes its sold-out run, I think, tonight, 7th of May. Ryan, welcome. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Yes, for it's me. really nice to meet you. Um, we want to talk first about Retrograde. Could you tell the listeners what the play is about? Yeah, um, basically a young Sydney Poitier, he's 28 at the time, he's just did, he's kind of like mini-break, Blackboard Jungle, he's going, okay, you know, there should be loads and loads of roles for me. He realises that there isn't. And then he gets a contract for a, a brand new play by one of his friends called Bobby. And he thinks he's coming in to sign the employment contract. Mm. He realises that it's a little bit more sinister than that. Um, and he's offered a, a loyalty oath. Mm. And we kind of unpack that. But essentially, it's about um, a young artist kind of having to make a massive dilemma about weighing up his integrity against what it means to kind of move ahead in the industry. And how did you come across that story to start with? Yeah, I was doing loads of research on um, Sidney Poitier because uh, I'm, I'm someone who hates to not know stuff. So I was like, how comes everyone <laughs> keeps talking about this guy? Um, <laughs> let me do some digging. And I was looking at loads of his interviews and I came across one where he speaks for about two minutes about this time where, um, you know, he was trying to do this new film and the loyalty of came on his table. And I knew quite a lot about that. I knew a lot about the Hollywood 10 and stuff, but I never heard it from the perspective of a black artist. I was like, I've never heard of this blacklisting for black people. Um, and I was like, such an icon. It's so weird that we've not had heard the story before. So I did more digging, uh, read one of his biographies and there's about like half a page to it and that's it. But in my head, it was like, this is an incredible kind of political thriller. Um, why has no one written about this? I was like, you know, you kind of go, oh, someone should write about it. And I was like, why don't I write about it? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we had it. Yeah. I was like, I couldn't get out of my mind about like, how I've never seen anything like this before and I wanted to tell that story. The dialogue, it's quite kind of rapid fire. Yeah. It kind of, to me, it sort of reflected the kind of golden era Hollywood movies. Was that deliberate? 100%. Yeah, It's yeah, so yeah. like... I wanted to, to feel nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then how, how do you make somewhere feel nostalgic if you've never been there yourself, right? So I spent a year just watching 50s movies, Hollywood golden era movies. Living the dream. I know, <laughs> <laughs> I won an award. I won um, a Dr. Playwright award. Um, and that gave me a little bit of money at that time to kind of do my research. Yeah. I could never have done it without that, that money. But um, yeah, for a whole year, I was literally in the 50s. I like, bet you were quipping. Yeah. Whipping every <laughs> seconds. It was weird. Right? It was a weird time to know me. Uh, <laughs> I'm watching every Sidney Poitier movie. Right? Every film, just getting the way he spoke. I think what you kind of want to do is you want to you honour the man, but also at the same time make him fully human, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I was listening to what other people said about him. And it was interesting how, you know, he has this kind of really cool, calm demeanor. But when people speak about him, they're like, you 
get on his nerves, you know, <laughs> Sydney can snap. And I was like, that's what I want to hear. Yeah. I want to see those levels to him. <laughs> yeah. This this is a very different entity to for Black Boys, isn't yeah. it? Very different yeah. in terms of its style. But it seems, it strikes me as it's still recognisably your voice. How did you develop your style? Um, I think I love music. So I think regardless of what, if it's typical, Queen's of Sheba, uh, Retrograde, you'll see that everything's in a rhythm. Um, even though yeah. the rhythm changes from piece to piece, from era to era, it's all quite rhythmical. I love dialogue. I, lo- I love a back and forth. I love listening to people. Um, one thing I used to do is I used to just put my headphones in, go on a train, listening to nothing other than just like people's dialogue, how they speak when they don't think that you can hear them. You, you put yeah. your headphones in, people think you're invisible. Note that down, that's a really good piece of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've always felt like I had something to say. Hmm. I, felt, I think that's what made me want to write, simply because I'm an actor, but I, what made me want to write is I was like, no one's saying this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. But outside of theatre world, we're always talking about this kind of stuff. So why is nobody... Saying it. I didn't realize there was reasons why people wasn't saying certain things. Like, yes. I was just like, no, I'm saying it. I'm just gonna say it. Yeah, and, um, yeah. And now everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're like you're writing so unashamed and you're so bold. I'm like, I, I was just, I was just writing stuff that was on my mind. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you really moved away from the acting in that sense. Fully concentrating on the writing. At this moment in time, yeah. I think essentially I'm an artist, and I feel like I was quite boxed in as an actor, and I, I felt so, quite frustrated mm. all the time. I was just like, oh, why is no one writing this? Why is no one? I started, I wrote my first play and I was like, oh my gosh, I get to be the master of this whole entire world. Uh, this feels quite nice. Uh, I haven't kind of looked back. Captain of your own destiny, <laughs> yeah, exactly. isn't it? Totally. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, whereas for Black Boys was very sort of fluid, very poetic. Yeah. This is, is very dynamic and it unfolds in real time. Yeah. Was that something that you set yourself as a sort of goal to begin with? Or? 100% and I think I needed that year because I knew that I knew what I could could do. And, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think sometimes as an artist, you can go, this is what people like. This is what they want. It's almost my brand. Let me give them more of that. Yeah. And I feel like as a young artist, I was like, I don't really know what my brand is. I don't want to have a brand. I always want to play like I was when I was a child. I want to, every game is different. Everything is different. I want to play to feel different. So this was probably my biggest challenge structurally. It, it had to feel and be structured in a kind of classic kind of play, but it also had to 100% feel like it was my version of that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I was toying with in here. Yeah. Um, how do you approach putting a real character on stage? Because you don't want an impersonation, do you? Exactly. So I think what it was when we sat down and we really spoke about who this person was, why do we hold them in the vein that we do? And then adding that human aspect to it, you know, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? You know, you can watch as many Sydney tapes as you want, but essentially, how do you come away from the icon and the legend and actually create a, a, a three-dimensional human being in real time? What would he be thinking in this time? And I think one of the major things is, um, for us as a, um, a group of people is going, we only ever see him in this proper, strong, stoic kind of position. And there were times where we were, I was saying to like Ivano, or Amit was saying to Ivano, oh, um, you know, you got to be more vulnerable here. And I was like, but Sydney's not like that kind mm. of thing. And we were like, I know, but imagine this is the version of Sydney that we see where he's not being Sydney, and, yeah. that, and as soon as he tapped into that, we started seeing the lovely stuff that he was he's really given. Yeah, because um, I think that's what this is—a snapshot. We should name check Ivana Jeremiah. Who Jer- yeah. Ivana Jeremiah, yeah. yeah. Incredible yeah. performance, yeah. I thought. Great performance. He's, he doesn't look a lot like Poitier, but he is Poitier. And you cannot take your eyes off him. No, when he's no. Yeah. at all. Yeah. Extraordinary charisma. Absolutely incredible um what he's doing (laughs) you directed for black boys at least i think in the west end yes yeah and the royal court yeah but you worked with amit sharma on retrograde so how as a writer do you find that sort of difference like i mean having being master of your own destiny in such a huge way but then handing something over like that it could have been 
very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's like about 20 versions of how this could have went in my head. And this version that we did is the one that worked. Okay. This is the universe where, we, where it wins. <laughs> <laughs> even, even in terms of when I'm giving my notes, I have to really think about it and go, are these directorial notes or are these actual writing notes? And then kind of go, okay, cool. Let him, I think what it is essentially is trust. Yeah. Uh, me and Ahmet met quite a few times before he went away to direct it. And the main thing for me is that we were on the same way of thinking. So even when I had notes, there was no kind of pushback because Ahmet was already thinking about those things anyway. And I was so happy that, you know, it was somebody that I trusted. We were in the same headspace and we wanted the same things. We saw that we had the same vision, uh, which is so rare. Mm. It's so very rare. Because um, I've been on projects before. Where I'm just like, that's not it. The buzz around you is massive <laughs> at the moment. From the outside, you know, we've yeah. seen for Black Boys and Retrograde yeah. in such a short space of time. Yeah. And obviously you have Queens of Sheba and Typical yeah. as well before, yeah. but it feels from the outside like it's just been a kind of like, whoop, you know, yeah. unbelievable, sudden thing. But how does it feel to you? Uh, like an unbelievable sudden thing. <laughs> 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 uh, do you know, I think the weirdest thing is, up until last year, I used to be able to sit in the shows and just watch the show um, and then go home and listen to people talking about it on the way home. Like, That's nice. It doesn't happen anymore. I'll come off the train and be like, right. Last night I was at the queue and we did a QA and a and they had to sneak me through the uh, like performers and exit, right? At the back. I felt so weird, man. <laughs> and they were like, they were like, they've never had to sneak a writer through the back. <laughs> 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 They're like, what's going on? Um, but there is this kind of, you know, people don't just want to talk, they want to talk to you. I met a lady <laughs> yesterday who was like, oh, I forgot my letter, I had a letter for you. And I was just oh, like, wow. it's, a, it's a lot. And I'm someone that's really quite private. I don't even live in London. So I think I've been quite overwhelmed in the last kind of month. Yeah, but um, I love it. I love the fact that people feel that way about the show and they, they want to continue conversations because essentially that's what it is. Mm. You know, um, I'm not going to have all the answers in the show, but I want to start a conversation. Mm. So um, I also want to be around for that conversation, but also, know how to protect my own mental health and go, okay, got to wrap this up now. Because um, it deals with extraordinary issues, all sorts exactly. of issues and that, that many have never seen on stage before exactly. and talked about. And I wonder from your point of view, this has been sat with you, I know you wrote it in the pandemic, but it's sat with you for over a decade, yeah. really. And your very first monologue to become an actor yeah. has found yeah. its way into the show too. Yeah. So what's it like for that to arrive on the West End? Yeah, I think maybe on Sunday when we close will probably be my first time sitting in the show and going, uh, I think up until that moment, I'm still noting it. Um, I'm still like, ah, it's not there yet. It's, it's very difficult for me as an artist to kind of, but I think last time at the Royal Court, when I watched it in the last shot, I was like, oh my gosh, this is my life. This is this is so much of my life and people that I know. Um, and I got to view it as the audience view it, as opposed to someone that can that's responsible for it. Just to come in here, I walked through uh, Shaftesbury Avenue and you go, that's my name. <laughs> and it's so weird I think in, at this particular moment it almost feels like it's not my name like this Ryan Kelly camera guy he's doing really well for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> my life still remains exactly the same as it's ever been so um, it's just like wow that's whoa is there further life for the show? I should think so I mean audiences have been screaming for it to come back I mean the people want it you got to give people what they want um, <laughs> <laughs> and what about retrograde will there be uh, life beyond the kiln for that? I hope so. It'd be really nice. It'd be, yeah, I think 
I'd be astonished if they yeah. that. <laughs> What's next for you? There was five plays that I, I wanted to write in five years and uh, Retrograde was the final was the final piece of that kind of study on um, black identity over the ages. You know, obviously you had Typical that was set in the 90s and now Retrograde set in the uh, 50s. Um, so I don't know what I'm gonna write next in terms of a play, but um, TV's been keeping me quite busy. A lot of theatre people being like, don't let them steal you away. <laughs> <laughs> I'd second you can that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But no, they don't. You. They don't love you. Like they don't we love do. you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a kid still. Like I, I really wanna. That's why I feel really weird when people talk about me in a certain way. I'm like, I'm a kid. I'm, this is elementary. I'm still I'm still getting started. Um, so I'm going to explore. I'm doing a lot of good TV projects. I just finished doing... Um, I did a flat share last year that went on to really great, great things. Queenie, Channel 4 drama. That will be... I think that's later on this year. That's based on the Candice Carter-Williams yeah, book. Yeah, best-selling book. And that came about because she saw For Black Boys. She saw For Black Boys. And then we started a conversation. And she was like, yeah get on this project and I was like you sure she was like get on this project <laughs> <laughs> and honestly it's been one of the most fun I've ever had in a writer's room um, the way she conducts her room is incredible I was the only uh, guy there as well so there was a lot of pressure in that, ah. <laughs> in that sense as well but um, no beautiful beautiful project so yeah I'm doing some of my own stuff now. brilliant well we look forward to the next play we yeah. cannot yeah. we cannot yeah. wait yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you man yeah Thank yeah. you so much for joining yeah, us. Bless you guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. That was Ryan Calais Cameron. Ryan's play is now on at the Kiln Theatre in Kilburn. Coming up after the break, we'll be reviewing The Good Person of Szechuan at the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith. In the meantime, why not give us a five-star rating and hit subscribe? Hi, I'm Danny Mays, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Okay, this is our second review. It's The Good Person of Szechuan. Uh, Nancy and I haven't seen this, but Nick and Alice have. So what's it about? So it's a really playful, exciting, zany take on Bertolt Brecht's sort of famous play, um, directed by Anthony Lau. And he's sort of taken the Chinese setting that's sort of gestured at in the title of the play, but often not made much of, and really embraced it and sort of filled the production with nods to modern China, used a predominantly East Asian cast, and also turned the production into something very, very sort of joyful. It's a co-production between uh, English Touring Theatre, Sheffield Theatres and The Lyric. It's astonishing to me that The Lyric Hammersmith has become the place where you can see Bertolt Brecht. It's about the only place in London that's doing Brecht at the moment. They've just done Dario Fo's Accidental Death of an Anarchist, which we've just learned is coming into the West End, which is was also mm. extremely good, I think. We both agreed that we, we yeah. both really enjoyed these both these shows. Yeah, um, I think the, the Lyric Hammersmith under Rachel O'Riordan is such an exciting place, and I think doing this European theatre is in itself exciting, but also the fact that it's staged with such a sense of fun mm. and sort of forward-looking, adventurous spirit and sort of political vigour as well. Yeah, fun Brecht. is not what you always think of when you think of Brecht, either. I mean, exactly <laughs> yeah, what exactly. I was going to say. Yes, it's kind of thrilling. Rather sort of earnest, alienating and sort of hard work, like homework, really, most of the time Brecht, isn't it? But actually, weirdly, the stuff that's coming through at the moment, they, um, they've just done the... Caucasian Chalk Circle at the Rose Theatre last year which was similarly sort of quite playful and re 
reworked and, and reinterpreted for, for the 21st century. Um, I love the design of this show. Mm. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, the set designer Georgia Lowe has sort of done an, an amazing job of creating this sort of surreal child's playground with slides, a giant paddling pool in the middle of the stage, sort of floating foam pool noodles ringing the edges of the stage, which people sort of turn into cigarettes because it sort of centers on someone who runs a cigarette shop. Really witty and just so many opportunities for the actors to run around, slide around, hit each other, chuck water over each other, yeah. sort of really bring out the sort of slapstick side to the humour. Yeah, because the premise of it, um, it's interesting that they've kept the uh, the cigarette shop setting given the sort of piety of modern life. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but the, the premise of the play is the difficulty of being morally good in the face of capitalism, I think. Would, that, would you agree? That sort of Yeah, I think that's fair, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the lead character, Shente, the gods come to Earth looking for one good person in order to, to sort of save humanity. And Shente's friend, the water seller, says, Shente is the best person I know. Go and look at her, give her some money, see how she thrives. And she is basically fleeced of her money by lovers, by exploitative neighbours, by the person she buys the, the tobacco shop of. Um, so it is just basically at every single turn, she, she is thwarted in her attempts to do good. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it's quite surreal, you really do feel the sort of agony of every time she does a kind act, it, it's it's repaid in the worst possible way. And the only way she can survive in this world is by becoming corrupt herself. And it sort of does sort of call back to the, the sort of brutality of wartime Europe and post-wartime Europe where everyone was sort of struggling under huge privations and trying to sort of scratch a living in this destroyed society. Yeah. Um, but it also does feel like it has a bit of sort of cost of living crisis era London relevance as well that sort of maybe as every, everyone gets a bit more stretched, kindness can sort of slip over into foolishness. There, yes. There's that sort of fear. Yeah, it's interesting thing about the acting that we should say it's been adapted by Nina Siegel, who um, I think is is a sort of coming playwright. I don't know that much of her works, but I saw the uh, the show she's put on at the New Diorama the other day. Even though it is fun, there is still an element of that sort of Brechtian style to the acting. I thought, you know, it's not naturalistic. It's slightly OTT and sort of keeping you. I felt at a slight distance the audience I mean that's what sort of stopped me engaging 100% but were you more sort of warm to it than I was yeah I I, I think I, I think it was the style of acting I was expecting I yeah. think it sort of comes with the territory because this world is so surreal and strange and these are archetypes you're sort of feeling the sort of universal themes and emotions rather than sort of getting a hyper specific sense of someone's individual quirks and personality there was almost like a panto like feel yeah. to it at points which I really enjoyed you sort of you know who to boo and you know who to cheer for but That's what true. I like about it is that Brecht kind of takes those simple archetypes of good guy bad guy and then makes them grayer and grayer and muddier and by the end you say oh I came into this thinking it was a really simple morality fable but now it's incredibly complicated and you're sort of left with your head spinning really yeah, yeah. there's also a giant frog in it which I you know I think there's not enough of in London <laughs> theatre really yeah, the, the giant frog is brilliant and the giant rat is yeah, also a yeah, great feature yeah the giant feature. rat is great and there are you see, it's interesting you say the morality gets muddier I mean the gods get muddier as well mm. the, the gods who are stranded on earth find, they find living a bit of a struggle as well well they find the cost of living a little hard and they get 
more they, they end up living by a riverside and they they end up getting dirtier and more sunburnt and more sort of desperate for food and drink as the play goes on so uh, it's hitting everyone folks yeah exactly i thought the image of the gods they start out in these immaculate white togas and the hems get grubbier and grubbier and their faces also get painted red with sunburn because yeah. they're not used to having to live in earth's brutal climate yeah and at the very end i'm not spoiling too much when i say this uh, the three of them ascend in doll form to heaven on a giant grab hand from a sort of arcade game amazing <laughs> yeah I thought that was so funny again not an image we see not an image we see often enough on the in the in the it London sounds well directed I mean Anthony Lau is a real rising star isn't he I mean he certainly he was up in Sheffield I think and um, yeah I, it sounds like he's really put a interesting spin on yeah, that yeah it's, it's good there's a real vision to this whole show mm. I think isn't there the, the, and the great sort of totality of design acting direction all working together I thought so um, so I agree with you Alice I think what Rachel O'Riordan is doing there is, is astonishing really I've, I've seen really good stuff there recently under her looks like yeah. Nick and I are going to have to go and see it yep yep <laughs> <laughs> Lastly this week, we were hugely sad to learn of the death of Soho Theatre Associate Director Adam Brace. Adam wrote the play's Stovepipe and they drink it in the Congo and was a hugely respected dramaturg and director. He directed shows including Alex Edelman's Just For Us and Liz Kingsman's One Woman Show. Our deepest condolences to his family, friends and colleagues. From His Majesty's Theatre, this has been the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk and all our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much to Alice Savile for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, hit follow or subscribe so you'll always be reminded when a new episode drops in. See you next time. Hold up. 